Skagit Talks is supported by the Associated Students of Skagit Valley College, representing students and organizing activities throughout the school year. Find out more at assvc.com. If you've enjoyed Skagit Talks, we need your donation today. Please go to ksvr.org and press the donate button. Thank you. It's now time for Skagit Talks. Featuring local news, interviews, and information from around the valley. Created with the help of Skagit County community volunteers. Now, KSVR 91.7 presents Skagit Talks. Today is a conversation with Rose Spidell, Education Ombuds with the Governor's Office. She talks about bullying in educational situations. From the Northwest News Network, a symphony in Burns seeks healing, three years after occupation. Bill would allow police to arrest people who refuse boat inspection checkpoints. All this and more on today's edition. Now, the Education Ombuds, Rose Spadell. Good day and welcome to Skagit Talks. This is David Johnson. And today we have a guest with us who is from the education, she is the education ombuds from the office of the education ombuds from the office of the governor of the state of Washington. That is a mouthful, but her name isn't that hard to say or much longer. It's a pleasure to welcome Rose Spidell with us. Rose, welcome aboard. Thank you, Dave. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you with us here. So you are here talking about basically some of the things that your office does um, in reaching out to public schools in the state of Washington. So why don't you give me just a brief background of the Office of Education Ombuds and then what you're doing here in Skagit County. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes, the Office of Education Ombuds is a very small state agency, but we do work statewide. You can also just call us OEO. It's a little less of a mouthful. That's actually, yeah, if people are interested, your website is www.oeo.wa.gov. That's right. You can find a lot of information on our website, including about the topic that we're going to be up here today to do a workshop on, which is bullying and harassment. Um, our office was created about a dozen years ago by the state legislature to provide resources to families and schools and families and schools working together, and to be a resource for informal dispute resolution when issues or concerns or questions come up for kids in our K-12 public schools across the state. So as an education ombuds, one of the senior education ombuds in the office, I work individually with families that have questions. If they give me permission, I can reach out to schools and try to help resolve issues. Um, And then we do workshops, and we work on education policy in various committees in the state. Okay, that's quite a broad agenda you've got going there. It is. It's a lot of work for a small team, but we do our best, and we really appreciate the chance to share information with families, um, educators, and community professionals to just help. We're trying to really help make sure that every student has a shot at success in our public schools. That makes sense. Sounds fair to me. Now, um, we're recording this earlier in the week, so when we talk about tonight, it's not necessarily the night you're listening to this performance or this this interview. So why don't you tell me a little bit about the workshop you're doing tonight. You were invited up by a a Skagit County group, I understand. That's right. A Skagit County parent-to-parent. They're a group, an an organization that works with families who have children with disabilities, and um, they host uh, workshops and things. So they invited us up to talk with families about what to do to try to prevent and then respond, if it does come up, to bullying and harassment of students with disabilities. And so we'll be sharing information about policies and procedures that school districts have um, to respond in the event of harassment or uh, bullying, and just trying to think about working creatively through situations and strategically trying to problem solve if bullying and harassment does happen 
but also talking about what schools and families can do in collaboration, sort of on an ongoing basis to try to build a school culture of respect and acceptance. Now, I, I saw an article recently in the Skagit Valley Herald about a school that is basically having a class describe what is good behavior and then rewarding it when it happens. Is that something you might be doing in your workshops, talking about what is what is actually appropriate and what is not? You know, that is actually, you know, we in our workshops, we talk about sort of the process and procedure, but it's absolutely something we encourage. And as an office, we get to participate in different work groups that look at trying to front load it. Yeah, let's teach kids about what we want them to do and demonstrate that and model it for them instead of waiting until they do something that we think is wrong and then letting them know. Teachers every day are working with kids to say, this is what I want you uh, to be doing in the classroom. And when teachers have some time to uh, work with their kids to develop what the good behavior rules are for their classroom, kids just buy in. Teachers uh, say that they get great results when they have an opportunity to uh, spend some time focusing on that from the beginning of year. And then they build a community. And so if if there are issues where someone is picking on another student or even bullying, sometimes if they've had that chance to build community, you're more likely to have someone stick up for their friend or their classmate. It really helps to teach good behavior and not just uh, criticize the negative. Right. Now, you mentioned the, the group, Skagit County Parent-to-Parent Group, is, is parents of kids with disabilities. So they're probably going to be the victims of bullying. So I'm just curious, do you often work with the people who do the bullying, the parents of the bullies? Well, you know, that definitely does come up because um, there are all kinds of kids that get caught up in bullying behavior. And, um, you know, our office is there to try to help families navigate processes. So kids who are accused of bullying others often face school discipline. And that's another one of the strategic areas that our office works on with families, which is that there definitely need to be consequences and um, steps taken to make sure bullying stops. But we have to be thoughtful because kids who engage in bullying behavior are still kids who need an education and maybe actually need some more of that work that you were talking about of teaching what good behavior looks like, getting a chance to practice it so it gets easier and easier and that they're less likely to engage in the negative behavior. Okay. Now, um, I know that it's not yet uh, Disability History Month. That's coming up in October. But uh, I know I'm looking at a flyer you have from your office about one out of five. Talk to me about one out of five. What's that all about? One out of five refers to the number of folks who have a disability generally in our society. So if we look at a group of five people, one of us probably has some kind of disability. Some are apparent. If I look at a person, I might notice that they use a wheelchair, <laughs> wearing glasses, visual impairments, and sometimes more significant Others we just can't see just by looking at each other or even talking to each other. But our office um, has been collaborating with a group called Rooted in Rights to do a video project connected with a curriculum on disability history and pride. And it uh, centers a couple of voice videos by students just talking about what it means for them to be a student with a disability in school. And we have two of those available on our website right now. And we're working on four more right now. And it's a chance to uh, share information. Any school, any community group can pick up the information off our website at oeo.wa.gov under the One Out of Five project and use parts of it, use all of it, explore, think about how to bring to center and bring out the voices of students with disabilities in your own school. Let them talk about what it is like for them because... We know, unfortunately, that um, there still is too much exclusion um, and 
bullying and harassment is part of it, um, that we still have work to do to bring those voices of people with disabilities right into our common conversations in our community. Good. I want to remind our listeners, uh, this is David Johnson. You're listening to Skagit Talks on KSVR. And we're talking today with Rose Spidell. She is an education ombuds from the Office of the Education Ombuds, which is part of the Office of the Governor in Olympia. And uh, she's here talking about what they've been doing about addressing bullying and harassing and, and how people get, respond to that. Now, Rose, we've been talking mostly about bullying people with disabilities. Not all, not all the people who get bullied are necessarily disabled. Um, are you seeing more bullying going on these days? I don't want to get too far into the, uh, the uh, political realm, but since we can see some bullying going on at higher levels of government, are you seeing that in schools more often? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. In our office directly, we don't necessarily have a way to track that, but I certainly have seen reports that bullying and harassment in schools has increased, um, that schools are finding more frequent incidents or more um, sort of direct harassment and bullying. And one of the things that we talk about, Dave, you're right, it's not just kids with disabilities that are the subject of bullying, um, but we use these two words, bullying and harassment, as though they were the same thing. And harassment really does refer to discriminatory harassment, where a student or a group of students is being targeted because of their membership in a group or a protected category. And it unfortunately, um, it does seem like we've seen reports that students have been targeted more frequently um, because of their racial identity or national origin, things like that. And so schools have a big a big job to make sure that their schools remain safe places for all students. And that kind of behavior, even if they're reflecting what's going on in our common media and, and political debate, it's just not appropriate in a school environment where everyone has to be there to learn. Now, what about you? We're talking obviously about picking on folks who are uh, disabled, who we can see, physically see it, or maybe we can't physically see it. But what about online bullying? I, I've been reading about that happening more and more, and, and how it's affecting people, and uh, especially uh, our friends in the LGBTQ community. Are you looking into those types of issues? Do you deal with those types of issues as well? Oh, I will tell you that I think quite often nowadays for young people, when bullying happens, it's happening in all kinds of places. It's both in the hallways and on social media, in text messages, IMs, that sort of thing. It's absolutely part of it. And it means that, you know, I think some people debate whether it's gotten worse or more, you know, prevalent. I think one of the things that happens is it's harder to escape. So if you're a student and you've been bullied in the hallways, when you go home, at least you're at home. But if you go home and you check your messages or your chat and it's still right there, it's really hard to get away from. And so, again, that's an area where I think when when things are happening well, schools are working with families to be really up on top of what are the latest formats where this stuff is happening and how to protect kids, how to give kids some independence, but also some monitoring and guidance. Again, teach good, appropriate behavior online or in that format. And yes, you mentioned LGBTQ folks, and they also are another group that is unfortunately disproportionately targeted for this kind of behavior. And I think when people, um, you know, are easily tagged as different um, or not meeting a common expectations, that happens. And so school staff and families really have to be extra alert for that and be ready to just, again, model what's appropriate impose consequences that are appropriate and effective and support the student who's been targeted. You, you know, you touched on a topic I was about to ask you about, and that's monitoring and still allowing independence. And so, you know, let's just say I'm the 
uh, the parent of a 12-year-old who I think might be being bullied. And I want to check his or her um, Facebook and online, but I also don't want to be intrusive. I want him or her to have some privacy. And uh, what some suggestions might you have for me as a parent uh, in, in regarding that, who, who maybe isn't disabled, but still might be uh, subject to that kind of thing? My goodness, Dave, you've really called me on something that I need to, like, get more up to speed on. <laughs> and honestly, <laughs> because I'm an ombuds and also because I'm a parent, you know, my personal thought is that one of the things that as parents, as we introduce our kids and uh, allow them to experiment with some of these things, that we set expectations up front, which is that I'm going to give this to you and I'm going to give you some privacy. But if there's a time when I have concerns, I might ask for the opportunity to look in and see what's happening. That way, when it comes up, we've already said, you have some privacy, but it's not without limits. And that's my job as a parent. So I do think, um, and now that you've asked me that, that's something I'm going to look into more. (laughs) I think schools, honestly, are partnering with families to have that discussion up front um, so that they can be more on top of it. Okay, tell me a little more about your website. Um, I'll just remind you, folks, if they're interested, it is uh, oeo.wa.gov. And you mentioned that there's some videos on there, and I'm guessing all kinds of information that can help folks. Why don't you tell me a little more about how that's developed and how you keep that current? Yes, absolutely. So www.oeo.wa.gov or oeo.wa.gov. We have information you can uh, learn about, and then you can find information about uh, students with disabilities, student discipline, attendance, and truancy, all kinds of things. And we do try to update that because we know the laws and rules change often. You can also find information about our one out of five disability history and pride project. And you can find out how to get help from our office if you have a particular question, or you want to invite us up to do a workshop or a, a, a convening with you. So please do check out our website. We also um, use a toll-free number and we have telephone interpreters so that we can work with families who speak um, many different languages. Um, So please check it out. All right. Well, you can get that number and learn what the languages are covered at oeo.wa.gov. So we've only got about a minute left, Rose. So um, you mentioned about being invited up. When someone invites you up, uh, who picks up the tab for you to come speak? Well, um, quite often we're being invited up for parent groups who are on a shoestring, if that. Um, And so when we can't go everywhere that we're invited, but we usually have some money for travel within our budget. Um, And then we rely on our partners generally to find the space and Um, sometimes provide a little coffee and pizza. Well, you can never go wrong with coffee and pizza. That's right. (laughs) Now, you're actually headquartered out of Seattle. Is that right? Our office is based in Seattle. We're a very small team of seven. One of us is in Ellensburg, and the rest mostly work um, uh, remotely, telecommuting. And we try to – we'd love to get broader reach. If only we got bigger, we would. Um, But people can find us online, and on our website, they can find our toll-free number. All right. That sounds great. So uh, it sounds like even if bullying is increasing online, so is the help to address it. We're trying, definitely. All right. Well, we've been talking today with Rose Spidell. She is an education ombuds with the Office of the Education Ombuds from the Office of the Governor in uh, Olympia. And we've been talking about bullying and responding to it and about disability. And one more time, that website is oeo.wa.gov. Rose, thanks so much for coming in today. It's been great talking with you. Thank you, Dave. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure having you with us. This is David Johnson for Skagit Talk saying thanks for listening. And hey, be kind out there, won't you? Next up is Selected Short Subjects with a local information feature. Back in the annals of history, we go digging for personal reminiscences of times past. Hear about the people and stories in their own words as the Skagit Historical Museum presents a Skagit History Moment.
Each week we will be sharing stories from various sources published by Skagit County Historical Museum. Founding of Skagit County due in part to Power Politics by Bill Reynolds. The newspaper editorial war over the creation of Skagit County. The Puget Sound Mail and Northwest Enterprise answered the argument for division was appropriate given the low regard in which the Skagit region was held by its northern neighbors. They sought greater recognition for the southern portion of Whatcom County, namely the Skagit River Valley, Delta, and Tidelands. The clash came to a head when the territorial legislature met in the fall of 1883. While Powers' bill for separation fell short, he and Kincaid did not retreat. After a few weeks, Kincaid simply reintroduced the measure. The timing was crucial. With the so-called Lime Kiln Lobby of Whatcom County having returned home from the legislature in Olympia, Kincaid's bill cleared both houses on November 24th, exactly one month after the original legislation had failed. Today, Skagit County is world famous for its extraordinary natural beauty, rich multicultural heritage, diverse, vibrant economy, and vast, unlimited potential. This is Janice Gage for Skagit County Historical Museum. And now regional news from the Northwest News Network. In 2016, the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge became synonymous with a militant takeover. But for the people who live in the Haney Basin, that's not what makes the area special. A new symphony celebrates the natural wonders in the communities of Eastern Oregon. OPB's Emily Kirton brings us some stories behind the music. Well, I'm Chris Thomas, and I'm a composer living in Bend, Oregon. I was born in Pendleton. Recently, I was commissioned to write my first symphony, and that symphony is about the Malheur Refuge. The first movement comprises several million years, representing the, the early formation of the place. My very first experience out there was stepping out of the car in the middle of the basin and feeling this sense of openness and sacredness. Um, in, in the place, and I thought that right there has to mean something musically. Movement one is about the start of Malheur and the arrival of wildlife. And movement two, the next most momentous event was the first people to show up. There were thousands of people that lived here for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And we have a responsibility to all of the lands that we call home. My name is Diane Tiemann, and I'm the director of the Culture and Heritage Department at the Burns Paiute Tribe, and I live in Burns, Oregon. With music, individuals typically would have songs that were given to them or that they created to to give to the landscape, honor the landscape, and make the landscape feel good, you know, and be happy with your presence there. And one specific uh, song that I came across not too long ago um, was talking about when the first wagons came through the basin here, and um, the girls were singing about watching this strange thing come into the basin. Well, hi, I'm Susan Doverspike, and I'm a rancher in Harney County. I'm fourth generation, and we are grass managers. If we don't take care of the land, it won't be here for the next generation. 
That's our flood irrigation water with a beautiful blue cloud overhead. It's a shallow layer of water. And because it is hayed every year, it's tender and new and green and delicious, and the birds love it. Those are sandhill crane. That was a meadowlark. Those are blackbirds. Well, those would be snow geese. I don't know the difference between snow geese and Ross's geese. There's some little stripe on the side of their face, I'm told, that differentiates them. Hear that one that goes, sounds like he's saying, put that down, put that down. <laughs> he's a put that down bird. <laughs> I'd always loved music, and I got into band, and I just started trying stuff, and I was like, man, I can't not do this. Okay, Chris, so let's see, hon. Um, I'm Christian Scott Boyd. I'm 18. Um, I'm a senior at Burns High School, and I live in Burns, Oregon. Okay. All right. You're going to, okay. I have in my hands an alto saxophone, which is the, uh, the second highest octave in the saxophone family, and it's probably my favorite thing ever. people and you know them like if you go to the store you're like wow hey I know that person it creates a community that is not only strong in the first place but every time something bad happens can get even stronger from that I'm gonna go where the music takes me the last movement just began taking the shape of this bright brassy fanfare and I realized oh I think that's what I'm trying to say is be excited about these places. And Movement 5 doesn't really need to be about anything in particular. It's just looking ahead, celebrating a new and exciting future for places like Malheur. The message to this piece is to find healing and common ground with people around you. That's ultimately what I wanted from this. Here's the national news. The Public News Service Daily Newscast for Friday, April 26, 2019. I'm Mike Clifford. Former Vice President Joe Biden launches his presidential campaign warning that Trump is a danger to the character of the nation. Also on our Friday rundown, six 2020 Democrats to speak tomorrow at a forum in Vegas, plus thousands of Navajo homes get electricity for the very first time. Topping our news, former Vice President Joe Biden announced his 2020 presidential bid Thursday with a video warning that four more years of Trump would forever and fundamentally alter the character of the nation. Yahoo News notes that Trump responded via tweet, and of course with a nickname, Welcome to the race, Sleepy Joe, he tweeted. I only hope you have the intelligence long in doubt to wage a successful primary campaign. It will be nasty. You will be dealing with people who truly have some very sick and demented ideas. Trump added, if you make it, I'll see you at the starting gate. Meantime, many of the heavy hitters running for the 2020 Democratic Party presidential nomination will be on hand Saturday at a forum on labor issues in Las Vegas. 
Speakers at the National Forum on Wages and Working People include Senators Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, and Amy Klobuchar, former Congressman Beto O'Rourke, former U.S. HUD Secretary Julian Castro, and former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. Danielle Gibbs-Leger is with the Center for American Progress Action Fund, a co-sponsor of the event. She says candidates will be asked how they plan to improve conditions for working people. Economic and political power is increasingly controlled by the wealthy few corporations and billionaires, and most Americans have been left out of the economic prosperity of the past several years. So we are really looking forward to talk about what they're going to put forth. The Service Employees International Union is also co-sponsoring the event. Candidates will be asked for their thoughts on how to make it easier to join a union in the wake of a damaging Supreme Court decision last summer. The high court decided that government workers who don't belong to a union cannot be required to pay for collective bargaining, even when they benefit from it. I'm Suzanne Potter. That event will be live-streamed online at workersforum.org. And a bill that would increase penalties for damage to critical infrastructure making its way through the Illinois legislature, opponents are not backing down. More from Mary Sherman. Activists from social justice, environmental, and faith-based groups gathered in Chicago on Thursday to denounce House Bill 1633. Supporters claim the measure is needed to protect oil and gas pipelines and other infrastructure from vandalism. Kyla Johnston with the People's Lobby disagrees and thinks the bill's true intent is to use the threat of hefty fines, lengthy jail sentences, and felony charges to silence protesters. We already have these laws in place. This is really just targeting specific dirty energy sites and being used as a scare tactic to make it so environmental organizers and activists won't be peacefully gathering at these places and calling out dirty energy for what it is. The bill, which was passed by the House, creates a broader category of critical infrastructure to include pipelines, oil and natural gas facilities, railroads, dams, and National Guard bases. Johnston says under this bill, an act of civil disobedience that would be a minor offense if committed elsewhere could result in a prison sentence of up to 15 years. Supporters of HB 1633 say peaceful protests, employee picketing, and vandalism are excluded. Similar legislation has been introduced in about a dozen other states this year, including one that recently passed in Indiana. A proposed offshore wind farm south of Martha's Vineyard off of Massachusetts could be the first industrial-sized facility of its kind in the United States. The company Vineyard Wind expects to build the 84-turbine wind installation this year, pending several state approvals. One important aspect is its potential impact on local fisheries. So, the company is partnering with the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth School for Marine Science and Technology, or SMAST, to monitor the effects of wind farm construction on marine life. SMAST Dean Stephen Lorenz explains why they're doing this research. Anybody who has done work on the water is very familiar with how marine life will aggregate, colonize any foreign structure or surface that's placed in the water. And we expect the same things to happen with these wind turbines. Lorenz says the impact may be positive or negative, and they'll study local and regional results. I'm Laura Rossbrautellum reporting. And finally, Mark Richardson reports crews from Salt River Project and other power utilities will be busy this weekend. They'll be installing electric power for the first time to thousands of homes in the Navajo Nation. 
The effort, known as Light Up Navajo, will wire more than 15,000 homes in northeast Arizona and northwest New Mexico, most of which have never been connected to the power grid. Brett Marques, with the Salt River Project, says they're one of 24 community-owned utilities from 12 states to support electrification efforts by the Navajo Tribal Utility Authority. Having homes without power in 2019 was news to us, and so I think just the communication and getting that word out um, right here in our own backyard, being a utility here in Arizona, obviously, and having residents in Arizona that don't have power was humbling for us. There are about 15,000 homes in the 27,000-square-mile Navajo Nation, that's roughly the size of West Virginia, that do not have electricity. I'm Mike Clifford. Thanks for wrapping up your week, News and Inclusion with Public News Service. We are member and listener supported, and you'll find us online at publicnewsservice.org. Thanks for listening to today's edition, produced by Joseph C. McGuire and edited by Jay Charles. You've been listening to Skagit Talks, the community information and news program on KSVR, Skagit Community Radio.